Hey, Crosswalk, how you guys doing? All right? All right. It's noon. It's almost lunchtime. I guess. Um, so yeah, this has been an incredible week. I hope you've had an incredible week, but I've had an incredible week. Last week, we came up and talked to you about the situation that Crosswalk Chattanooga was in, that we needed to raise quite a bit of money, $2 million in 15 days in order to put in a letter of intent that we want to buy the building, we want to purchase the building. That was the number that the conference asked Crosswalk Chattanooga to come up with. And um, I want you to know that the letter of intent went in on Friday. We reached the $2 million gap. Now. Incredible. And, I mean, it's just incredible. Um, there's a hundred. There's a hundred members at that church, even though there's about 500 people who attend. Um, but the membership is moving, moving, you know, like it does a little bit more slowly. But um, I don't think anyone thought they would make the two million dollars. And they had over 225 individual donors to that. Many of them were you as well. So thank you for that. Really incredible. They had um, until the very end. Quite honestly, they had already reached the number. It wasn't until the very end that we had a half a million dollar gift. Before that, there were only three, I think, $100,000 gifts or more. So the vast majority of that giving came specifically from smaller gifts um, that were just people just leaning into the generosity of their hearts and what God was calling them to. We said in October that we believed we were living in a season of momentum and miracles, and this is just the first of many. So um, if you see it on social media, congratulate them. That leadership team worked incredibly hard. They had a big celebration today, and they should, as I understand it, be putting the offer in on the building specifically by December 8th. So it's a, it's a big deal, man. They get a, a really phenomenal space. So praise God for that. And thank you for the gifts that you gave through that time as well. Because we realize that miracles come from the generosity of others, right? Whether it's the generosity of God through a community, through a person, through people, um, coming together to, you know, get past the particular hurdle. It's something that we do not generate ourselves, but miracles and momentum come from what God is doing through every single one of us, regardless of the size of the gift. And last week, I made a statement that I said I would unpack this week a little bit more. And the statement is this, the quantity of the gift does not determine the quality of the gift. And I mentioned this just briefly last week, but we're going to be talking about a particular story today, but I need you to understand the context. The story is the story of the widow's mites. And you've all heard of it. We're going to be studying from Mark 12. We all know this story, but we don't always know the context of the story that actually brought it up. So I want to start in Mark chapter 12, if you're following along in scripture, but I'll be pulling it up on the screen. It begins with the parable of the talents, which I don't know if you remember, but of the tenants, not the talents. Sorry, you know the talents. This is the tenants. Um, this chapter begins with this story. Jesus spoke about a landowner who had uh, I, he loved his vineyard, right? Um, that, that was always really fruitful. And so he hired some guys, they were called vine dressers, to work the fields. When the time of harvest came, he actually sent his messengers, sent his servants there, and they beat them up, right, and sent them back. So finally, the man decides to send his son, thinking his son will get greater respect from the vine dressers, but they kill him instead. Now, the point of this story was not about the vineyards. The point of the story was about um, 
pushing back on the Pharisees and the Sadducees who were not recognizing who Jesus was as the Son of God. And when they realized that Jesus was speaking against them, they got very upset, like you do, and they plotted to kill him. The only problem was they couldn't do anything about it because they feared the people, so they left him alone. But the story doesn't end there. They tried to catch him again. In fact, this time, the Pharisees and the Herodians, these are people who bought into kind of the Roman culture that was being given to them by the occupying forces of Rome. We called them Herodians. And the Pharisees and the Herodians didn't really like each other. And you know, nothing brings a disparate group of people together like mutual hate. Am I right? Listen, we all know this because it doesn't matter what football team you love, you will get together with other football teams you would normally hate as long as your team or their team is playing the Cowboys. All right? You know that's true. You know that's true. You may be a 49ers fan, right? And you like New England, but when either one of those teams is going to play the Cowboys, you're all fans together. Right? And it's the Cowboys' fault. They shouldn't have called themselves America's team. There's other teams in America. If you're a Cowboys fan, you're just all upset at me right now. I understand that. But so these two, these two disparate groups come together, right? Because they were upset. And they asked a question. They asked about paying taxes to Caesar. And you know this story, but I'll go through it anyway. Later, the leaders um, sent some Pharisees and supporters of Herod to trap Jesus into saying something he could so that he might be arrested. Right? So, teacher, they said, we know how honest you are. We know how impartial you are and don't play favorites. You teach the way of God truthfully. This is, this is just manipulative. We all have that friend, right? That friend who like butters us up before they make the ask. If you have a truck, you know what this is. Hey man, what are you doing on Sunday? Why? I know you like to help people. Right. If you don't have a truck, you don't know what I'm talking about. If you have a sports car, nobody's going to ask you anything. Because your car is worthless to them, really, truly. And you own a sports car, so you're probably not going to help them anyway. <laughs> That's horrible. Sorry. So bad. I, I'll just start the sermon again. I'm just going after everybody now. Um, I'm a little hungry. It's been a long day. So um. anyway, so they, they listen. Now, now tell us, is it right to pay taxes to Caesar or not? What was the trap here? The trap was sedition or heresy, right? Either you're not going to, you're not going to go along with the civil government that is there now that Rome has put into place, or you're not going to go along with the religious that said, you know, you should give back to God. So, so you've got sedition on one side, heresy on the other side, and they thought for sure they were going to trap him, right? Should we pay them? Or shouldn't we? And they waited with bated breath to see what Jesus would say, right? Because they knew that they got him either way. Either way, this guy was going to be in trouble. And Jesus calls him out on it. Why are you trying to trap me? Right? Like I said, we've all got that manipulative friend who tries to get something from us. I had a friend one time tell me, you know, I'm, I'm pretty good at manipulating people. I was like, you're not that good if you've got to tell me about it. And he's like, no, I can get people to do what I want just by talking to them. I was like, okay. Keep working on that. So Jesus calls him out. I'm like, what are, you, what are you doing? Why are you trying to trap me? This isn't going to work. And then he does something fascinating, right? He says, uh, show me a coin. I don't really play the same game that you guys are in. I don't know about this economy you're talking about. Give somebody to something. I don't know what that is. Anybody got a coin? Anybody got a Roman coin? Right? When they handed it to him, which is a little bit of an indictment anyway, because they're already playing the game that Jesus is not interested in playing. He says, Whose picture is this? And this is where I wish you could see the sarcasm in Jesus' voice, 
right? I, I mean, it's, it's, I'd like to say it's there in the Greek. I don't know that it is, but it feels like it is, right? Because how would he not have known whose coin this was? So he says, Who's, whose picture and title are stamped on this? What's this? And they go, well, it's Caesar's. And he goes, well, then, maybe you should give it back to him. If it's his coin, it's got his face on it, just give it back to him. Right? It's, it's a really sarcastic statement. Go ahead and give it to him. But uh, don't forget, make sure you give God what is God's. So he answered both their questions. Go ahead. This economy doesn't matter to me. Give it back to Rome. But if you're going to give to Rome what's Rome's, you should give to God what's God's. What's God's? Everything. His reply completely amazed them, says Scripture. What this means is that what he said was a little bit earth-shattering. What he said did not allow them to trap him. What he said was more than just, and I've heard pastors preach on this before. And they say, see, what this means is that you should be a good citizen and pay your taxes. That's not at all what this means. Not that you shouldn't be a good citizen and pay your taxes, whatever. But that's not what this means. What Jesus was saying here was not be a good citizen. What Jesus was saying here is, what? You cannot trap me with this. This is, I'm, I'm about something very different than this. So you think like, okay, they tried to trap him. That's it. All right, they're going to move on, but they don't. Then they try to trap him with the question of resurrection and marriage. And by the way, they brought Sadducees to ask him about the question of resurrection, which is fascinating because Sadducees didn't believe in the resurrection. Right, so they're trying to trap him again. This, they set up a hypothetical. This woman married seven brothers, kind of went down the line, no kids. Who will she be with at the resurrection? And Jesus says, you don't understand. That's not even what we're talking about. None of that's gonna happen. None of this is relevant to what's really going on. So you think it's done, but it's not done. Now there's a question about the greatest commandment. He's asked by a man, what's the greatest commandment? And he said, our, the Lord our God is one. Love him and love others. And the, and the man agrees with Jesus. He's like, yeah, absolutely. And, he, and Jesus says, oh, you're close to the kingdom of God. Then there's another question. I, I, Jesus must have been exhausted from this. Now there's a question, whose son Jesus is? Was he David's son or was he God's son? And Jesus actually answers this question by quoting Psalm 110, where David is calling out the God of the universe. And he's saying, listen, David calls him Lord, so I must be God's son. Finally, Jesus is done with this. This is all before we get to the widow's mite story. Finally, Jesus has a warning. I think he's just sick of these people. So he says, listen, beware of these teachers of religious law, for they like to parade around in flowing robes. He's just going to call them out and receive respectful greetings when they walk in the marketplace and how they love the seats of honor in the synagogues and at the head table at banquets. They love their positions that the religious life afforded them, right? What they believe gives them power in their society. But now he's not going to hold anything back. He says, yet they shamelessly cheat widows out of their property and then pretend to be pious by making long prayers in public. Because of this, they will be more severely punished. They don't have character. They don't have integrity. They don't have compassion. They've fallen in love with the trappings of a religious life, with the power or at least perceived power that they believe that it gives them. But these are not good people. These people do not live a generous life. It's a question for us. Have you ever been more enamored by the trappings of faith than interested in being faithful? 
if you grow up in churches, we don't have a lot of committees and subcommittees and all that sort of thing here. We just, you know, it's a, it's a lot of extra work, I think. But, um, you know, there's some churches that you want to get on this committee because if you get on this committee, the right people are on this committee and then you can make the changes that you want to see happen in church and this sort of thing. It's a weird power game, a weird power struggle. And some people fall into love with faith communities because they can find some power within it even though they're not living faithful lives. They look like they're leading. These people who loved the idea of faith and loved the trappings of religion weren't so interested in the sacrifice that it takes to be faithful. And maybe you found yourself in that spot and you've had to take a step back. So all this happens, right? Chapter 12, verses 1 through, all the way through chapter 40. And then I just love what happens next. Because Jesus actually positions himself in the temple by the collection box right? The heart of where so much of this issue was taking place, right? The heart of where these leaders that he was calling out were being so corrupted. He goes over and he sits by the collection box. Mark tells us he sits. And by the way, it's a cue. It's always a cue when Jesus sits that he's about to say something important. He would read scripture standing, but he would teach sitting down. So Jesus sat down near the collection box in the temple and watched as the crowds dropped in their money. Many rich people put in large amounts. Now, we need a little caveat here, right? Um, I've heard this story taught at times with the idea that, that big gifts might be bad. Just for the record, Jesus doesn't hate big gifts, right? God does not hate big gifts. There's nothing wrong with the quantity of gift, but really the biggest issue is the quality like we talked about before. I went to... Um, after Katrina, about three months later, I went to Waveland, Mississippi. And if you're familiar with that name, it's because um, Anderson Cooper went back for like a solid year to touch base on this community after Katrina because it was destroyed. So I took about 30 high school kids with a few other sponsors. I was working at Loma Linda Academy at the time. We took them down to Waveland, Mississippi to see if there was any work that we could do. Foolishly thinking in three months, things had gotten better. They hadn't. As we drove down from Atlanta, um, not Atlanta, I think we flew into New Orleans. As we, as we drove through from New Orleans, it looked like the set of The Walking Dead. I mean, there were, there were literally cars strewn everywhere, still on the sides of the roads. We drove by apartment buildings that looked like they had been abandoned and just cars on top of it. Like it was crazy, the devastation that had happened after that Hurricane Katrina. And um, we, we were down there and it was like, like you drove through the community and most of the homes didn't exist anymore. There was just a foundation and a FEMA trailer that somebody was sleeping in or a, a tent they had put up. It was, the devastation was overwhelming. Um, we, were, we were there in the houses that were still there that had been completely, completely submerged. And so we were tearing off drywall and trying to, you know, treat the timber that was there and dry it out if we could. It was just unconscionable. In fact, we were... Um, we were at pizza, at pizza one night and our server comes up and I said, oh, were you here during the, during the hurricane? She was like, yeah, I was. I said, can you tell me about it? And graciously she did. She said, you know, when the water, when the water started to fill up their, their first floor, they went up to the second floor. And when the water got to the second floor and began to fill it up, they went up into the attic. And when the attic began to fill up, they stepped out onto the roof of their house. And um, when, when the roof of their houses began to be submerged, they jumped onto trees. And she said, I couldn't believe this when she said this, 
Um, she said they would be holding onto trees and lightning would strike and they would look at their neighbors who were all holding onto trees as well. And then the wind would blow and push the trees into the water and then they would come back up. They would, they would, they would jump back up and then they'd look around at the next lightning strike to see if their neighbors were still holding onto their trees. Like that's what was going on in this community. Shocking, right? And the next day I'm driving with one of my colleagues in the car. We were going to the different work sites where we had dropped the kids off. And I remember pulling up and there was this massive RV. And it was like one of these diesel pushers, beautiful custom paint job. And it was pulling this big, big, huge boat that had the same sort of paint job. And then it had these two jet skis on it. Like this person had spent quite a bit of money on this. And I remember my colleague was sitting next to me and said, oh, that's disgusting. And I was like, oh, I thought it was really nice. Like it's beautiful. And she's like, no, it's disgusting that anybody would spend money on that. And I was like, wait a second, wait a second. Okay, I get it. That's, that's expensive. But why? I don't understand why you're so upset. Well, all the devastation, this and that. I was like, well, a couple things. Number one, I don't think this person probably bought this after the hurricane. I think they probably had it before, right? Uh, number one. Number two, I, I see that you like photography. Do you buy the nicest lens that you can? And this person said, yeah, I do. And I said, okay, then we're just talking about an economy of scale. This person could probably afford this right? It's not about the quantity, it's about the quality. And this person can probably afford it. Now, you're right. If this person cannot afford to feed their family because they bought this RV, that's a problem. But if you can't afford to feed your family because of the lens that you bought, that's a problem too. We're not talking about quantity here. We're talking about just an economy of scale. It means the quality is what matters. So Jesus is not talking about the problem of a large gift in the story. He's talking about the quality of your heart in the story. So then a poor widow comes in and dropped in two small coins. I don't know what the, word, what the picture you have in your head is, and I don't know where I got mine. It was probably some pastor somewhere along the way telling this story and me, me just internalizing it. But what I have in my head is that this woman, in the midst of all this tumult, right, all, this, all these loud gifts and these you know, people making sure they were seen, this woman comes in quietly, trying not to be noticed, and she drops two mites, these two tiny little coins, and they're very, very tiny, right? Jesus called the disciples to him, and he said, listen, I tell you the truth. The poor widow has given more than all the others who are making contributions. Jesus calls out the quality of the gift. He says, this gift is more, for they gave a tiny part of their surplus, but she, poor as she is, has given everything she had to live on. Just to give you a, some context of what a mite was, the mite was the smallest coin used in the New Testament. When you find them at archaeological digs, you can almost miss them because they're so small. Um, at the time of Mark's writing, a mite was worth 164th of a denarius, which was a day's wage for a common worker. 164th. So let's say you're making minimum wage here in California. What's $15 or something like that. My son just got back from Tennessee. He makes $7. <laughs> Almost not worth it, uh, but it's worth it. Keep your job. <laughs> Got to pay for college. I'm just saying. Um, so one sixty-fourth of a day's wage. It's not a lot of money, right? In fact, you might even ask the question: How is she even living? The truth is, as a widow, she would have been dependent on the generosity of those landowners who were following the Mosaic law of Deuteronomy, the Deuteronomical law uh, that we find in chapter 24, verses like 19 and 20, that essentially says. 
If you've got a widow or an orphan living on your land, you will let them live and you will give them enough to survive. This woman had nothing. So we got to ask the question, she finally gets something. And why did she give? Somehow she came in possession of two mites, this insignificant sum of money, two sixty-fourths. Did she think of all the things she could purchase with that money, which probably wasn't a lot? Did she consider hiding it away for a time of even greater need, if that's possible? The Bible doesn't say anything about that. What we do know is that her ultimate decision was to bring it to the temple. It's all she had. This begs a question for us today. Why do you give? When you choose to lead this generous life, why do you do it? Why do you give back to God through your community, through your talents, through your time, through your finances? Why do you do it? Did you grow up in a household where they were going to make sure that you gave tithe on your little allowance and so they'd lay it out for you? I was young, right? I was young back in the 80s, 70s. So my allowance was pennies. And they'd give me the coins and lay it out, and then we'd take that 10% away. That was so hard. <laughs> You're like, there's only like, it's like 10 coins there. You took one of them. What are you doing? Why do you give? Because God told you to? Because you feel pressure? Because someone up here stands and says, these are the things we're doing and we'd like you to give and you want to make sure that you... There's a lot of different reasons to give. We don't know why this woman give, gave. But the question of giving is never about the size. The question of giving is all, always about the quality of your heart. So what is the quality of your gift? Now, this is fascinating, right? Because I made that little statement last week. And on the video, I made that statement as well, the one that Chattanooga watched, which is it's not about the quantity, but it's about the quality. The quantity of the gift does not determine the quality of the gift. And I had someone call me this week and say, Pastor Tim, this has been messing with me ever since you said it this week. And we've already given to the building fund. We gave a considerable amount of money. I didn't ask him how much. And he said, but you know, I just didn't feel like the quality was right. The quantity was great, but the quality wasn't right. So today before I called you, my wife and I sat down and we decided really how much we could give. And so we've doubled the size of our gift. And I was like, are you serious? And he said, yeah, it wasn't, we gave, but it wasn't the quality we needed to give from. We weren't giving to the point of needing faith. We were just giving from our surplus, which is great. But we didn't, I mean, does your faith in God play into your generosity? Do you live on the edge of your faith because of what you're giving? And listen, again, I want to reiterate, I'm not talking simply about money. I'm talking about your time. I'm talking about your, your talents. I'm talking about what God has gifted you with, right? This man, he... He had given a lot, but he knew it didn't come from the right place in his heart. And so he went and he dug down and he said, you know what? We have to change our lifestyle a bit. We've got to actually change the way that we're living. There's going to be some things we're going to do without, but we believe that's where we should put our money. It's pretty incredible to make that decision. 
Because I think for most of us, most of the time, our giving doesn't really enter into the space of faith because we're sacrificially giving to the point where things are going to have to change. By the way, to do this, you understand that it really means that we need to live maybe more, a little more at least, intentional lives than we do. Your gifts shouldn't come from someone standing up here asking or someone letting you know that there's a need. Your gift and your generous life should come from when you sit down and say, God, what would you have me do this year in the next calendar year as I'm looking at my finances, I'm looking at my time. When you lay out your calendar and say, I want to make sure I'm giving back to the community in this much of my time and this much of my effort. And so I'm going to set up my schedule so I can do this. I know that I want to give my talents back to God, so I need to practice this much more on the stuff that I've got or the, the talents that God has given me so that I can make sure that I give this much back to God. It's meaning that we have to live a lot more intentional lives than we do because we shouldn't live a generous life in reaction to what people need. We should live a generous life proactively being prepared for what God brings into our lives as need. And I don't think most of us do that. We say this every year at the end of the year, hey, we want you to sit down and we want you to think about the, 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 the process of your giving next year so it can be something that you've decided on before we ask. And I still believe that that's important. But it means that we need to live quite intentional lives. Does your faith in God play into your generosity? And what is the quality of your generosity? At the end of the day, this will never be about numbers. It will always be about your heart. And 2 Corinthians speaks to this, jumping to Paul. He says, remember this, a farmer who plants only a few seeds will get a small crop, but one who plants generously will get a generous crop. And then he talks about this proactive, intentional life of generosity. He says, you must each decide in your own heart how much to give. And don't give reluctantly or in response to pressure. And then there's that famous quote, right? God loves a cheerful giver, for God loves a person who gives cheerfully. And by the way, this generosity, it comes from somewhere. And, and we're going to talk about this more next week, but this generosity comes from somewhere. It comes from the gratitude in which you live your life. It comes from an understanding that God has given so much. How can we do any less? And that gratitude drives your generosity. That gratitude drives your intentionality. That gratitude drives the faith in which you're going to give. I don't like the term give till it hurts. I don't, I don't like that. But I do like the idea of living a life that is so generous that you've got to depend on faith to make it through at times. Because that's out of the ordinary living. And I just don't believe God called us to live ordinary lives. I don't believe God called us just to live lives that aren't full of momentum and miracles. So the question is, how do you live this generous life? How do you sit down and intentionally decide I'm not going to give you lists of things that I think you should do, activities or a process, because I just want you to think about your heart today, what your heart is asking you to do, 
and the quality of the gift that you give. There are people over these last two weeks who called me and said, I don't think my gift is going to matter. I only have this much money to give and there's a $2 million hurdle. How are we going to get there? Every single gift counts. Of all that giving, there's only like three gifts that were over $100,000. The vast majority of giving to this particular thing was from people just like you and me going, okay, we're going to make this happen. We believe this is where God is telling us to go. It's not about the quantity. It's never been about that. But it's always been about the quality of your heart and the position in which you put yourself so that God can use you in powerful ways. How do you live this generous life? Thoughtfully, intentionally, carefully. Waiting for those times where God has to fill the gaps and he does because God is faithful. Let us never be like those religious leaders who gave a lot from the wrong place. Let's make sure whatever we give comes from where God is provoking us and moving us to give. And having said all this, I just want to say thank you because so many of you live this way already. So many of you have decided I'm going to be someone who's not just a cheerful giver, but a thoughtful, intentional giver in my time and my money and my talents and what God wants for me. So thank you. I don't feel like I have to stand up here and convince you. I just get to stand up and remind you that God wants all of you to continue to live a generous life from the gratitude of what God has given you because that gratitude drives your intentionality. It drives your generosity. The gratitude is what reminds us of why we do any of this. We'll talk about that more next week. But thank you. Let's bow our heads. Lord, you've called us to a generous life, but you didn't call us to live in generosity so that you might be generous to us. You actually decided to live a generous life first and we're just following suit. So Lord, thank you for these last two weeks and what happened out in Chattanooga for everyone who gave here all across our campuses. But Lord, also thank you for what you're doing in the hearts of every single person here today. Not because of words I said, not because of that, but because you were always working on our hearts. You're always moving us towards more generosity, more love, more compassion. Lord, may we, may we honor the gifts that you've given us by doing the same. May we be intentional, thoughtful, careful, while at the same time leaning into faith knowing that there are times when we need to give sacrificially so that you can be faithful in our lives and fill those gaps. Thank you for that, Lord. And Lord, as we move into this Thanksgiving season and friends and family are coming in to town or we're going to see them, Lord, give us a spirit of generosity through that as well. Family can be tough, it can be beautiful, and it can be tough and beautiful all at the same time. So Lord, give us this sense of generosity towards one another through this time of thanksgiving. We thank you for this, Lord. And we pray for all of this in your name, in the name of Jesus. 
Amen. Amen. Thank you all for worshiping with us today. If there's anything that you want to pray about, generosity, intentionality, who, you know, the upcoming week that you've got to, that you've got to live through and suffer through for some of us and joyfully dance through for others of us. And we got a prayer team up here. They'll pray with you right afterwards. And also, I want to thank you for your continued support. The way that you guys have given and been generous is really amazing. We ask you to thank, we want to thank you for doing that. And also, we're grateful for you continuing to do that through the end of the year so we can meet all the different budget goals and things that we have as well. And lastly, and this is the most important thing, as you leave today and go into a week of Thanksgiving, I just hope that you do it in the spirit of Lovewell so that everyone can know how generous our God is. Thank you and have a great week. We'll see you next week.